Good evening, I'm Amna Navaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's reported death in a Siberian prison sparks a global outcry to hold President Vladimir Putin to account. The U.S. seeks to reassure NATO allies after former President Trump threatened to let Russia attack nations that don't pay up. We speak to Estonia's prime minister about the future of the alliance. These uh, statements uh, from uh, United States are making us uh, worried uh, because uh, United States has been the biggest ally. And a judge hands down a more than $350 million penalty and limits how former President Donald Trump can do business in New York because of civil fraud. Welcome to the News Hour. A New York judge has issued a steep penalty to former President Trump for inflating his wealth to deceive banks and others. We'll have more on that in a few minutes. But first to Russia, where top opposition figure Alexei Navalny is reported dead this evening. Russian authorities claimed he died early today at the remote Arctic prison where he was held often in isolation. The 47-year-old anti-corruption campaigner and politician had for years exposed the hidden fortunes of many top Russian officials, including President Vladimir Putin, incurring their wrath. President Biden said the news of Navalny's death in Russia, where many opposition figures have been killed, did not surprise him, but it did outrage him. He went from being Vladimir Putin's staunchest critic to leading Russia's strongest anti-corruption movement and eventually Russia's most prominent political prisoner. I believe, I am confident and declare that they are not the masters of our country and never will be. And a huge number of people agree with me. Russian prison authorities today announced Alexei Navalny died in a penal colony in the Arctic Circle, where he was serving a 19-year sentence on extremism charges widely seen as politically motivated. In a statement, prison services said Navalny felt ill after a walk and, quote, almost immediately losing consciousness. He was last seen in yesterday's court hearing, alive but gaunt after three years in prison, and seemingly laughing and well. His wife, Yulia Navalnaya, took the stage at Munich's security conference hours after he was reported dead. We cannot believe Putin and Putin's government. They always lie. But if this is true, I want Putin and his entire entourage to know that they will bear responsibility for what they have done with our country, with my family, and with my husband. And this day will come very soon. At the White House this afternoon, President Biden was unequivocal. Make no mistake. Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. The son of a military officer, Alexei Navalny, was born in the village of Butin, outside of Moscow. In the late 1990s, he earned a law degree from Moscow's Friendship of the People's University and grew into Russia's most well-known political opposition figure, crusading against corruption. He called Putin's United Russia Party, quote, the party of crooks and thieves. He led mass protests in 2011 and again in 2012, when it was clear President Putin would regain the presidency. Our Margaret Warner interviewed Navalny then. This is not an election. This procedure is aimed at only one thing, the appointment of Prime Minister Putin once again the president, seemingly for life. 
In 2013, he broke into politics with a mayoral run in Moscow, and though he didn't win, he did beat the incumbent Putin-backed mayor. House arrest followed in 2014 for embezzlement and later convictions on fraud and money laundering, charges Navalny denied. Despite being barred from running, in 2016 he announced he would run against Putin for the presidency in 2018. More arrests and repression followed. A 2017 detention for an unsanctioned rally, one of the country's largest opposition demonstrations in years, 187 cities, tens of thousands of Russians, all protesting corruption. Despite repeated threats, Navalny forged on with his anti-corruption foundation, investigating Russia's elite and bypassing state-run media with YouTube videos garnering millions of views. This is our country, and these swindlers are stealing our money. Everyone should fight however he can. His fight nearly killed him once already. In 2020, Navalny was in a coma for two weeks after being poisoned by a lethal nerve agent. Russia denied poisoning him, but a recorded call to a Russian intelligence agent featured in this 2022 CNN documentary revealed the poison was planted in his underpants. Despite being evacuated to Germany for treatment, Navalny made the decision to return to Russia in 2021. He was jailed as soon as he landed in Moscow and has been behind bars ever since. Today, hundreds gathered across European cities chanting anti-Putin slogans and blaming him for Navalny's death. Even across Russia, where dissent is punished, residents mourned his death. He's a Russian patriot. He wanted the country to become better. Navalny himself saw this day coming. My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple, not give up. For more on Navalny's death and legacy, we're joined by Andrew Weiss. He's a former State Department official who served in the George H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations. He's now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Andrew, thank you for being here. It's good to be here. So let's begin with this. Knowing Navalny's work, knowing the threats he faced, were you surprised to hear this news? Alexei Navalny has cheated death multiple times. The Kremlin uh, gave it its all in August of 2020 by trying to poison him with a nerve agent. But the uh, assassin squad had been stalking Navalny and his wife in the months prior. So the fact that it took uh, years of pressure on him, the physical toil, we still don't know exactly what happened in this prison in the Arctic Circle. We may never know the exact circumstances of, of his death, but he was put in the most difficult situation imaginable. And we should note his death is still unconfirmed. Do we have any reason, though, to doubt the news? I don't suspect at this point that Alexei Navalny is still alive. Okay. Does the timing of his death in any way stand out to you as significant? We, we're talking right now as world leaders are gathering in Munich, largely to try to strengthen the NATO alliance, largely to counter Russia. Does that say anything to you? It's unclear if this was a deliberate act on the eve of this important gathering in Munich where Vladimir Putin delivered a thunderous speech in 2017 and basically was signaling to the world that Russia would be on the march and would not uh, put up with Western pressure on it anymore. The reality now is very different. Russia is feeling emboldened. The war in Ukraine is starting to cut their way. 
we have a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, of the United States, who openly and gleefully embraces Vladimir Putin and wants to support Russia's line on Ukraine. We have deadlock in the U.S. Congress over continued uh, military and economic support to Ukraine. So we're seeing a moment of great defiance. Tell us more about Navalny, because he was easily, as we said, the most prominent political opponent and political prisoner in Russia. Why was he seen as such a threat to Putin and the Kremlin? Well, let's put this in perspective. Russia's leader has stayed in power for nearly a quarter century by, in Russian terms, bezalternativeness, which means lack of alternatives. So Vladimir Putin and his political team have cleared the landscape of any serious political uh, opponent, save Navalny. And now, for years, going back to the period when Navalny was first put in prison in 2021, they have made sure that this person can't challenge Vladimir Putin. So there was no expectation ever that Vladimir Putin was going to let Navalny out so long as Vladimir Putin was sitting in the Kremlin. At the same time, there is this kind of sadistic glee where the Kremlin has taunted Russian opposition politicians, including Navalny, has tried to show how tough they are, but it has been very sadistic in applying selective pressure and trying to show the average Russian that keep your nose out of politics, the cost is going to be too grave. What about the movement that he built? What happens to that now? Is there a Navalny in waiting in Russia? Unfortunately, there's not. And the Russian opposition, such as it was, largely has fled the country in the wake of Russia's unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost exactly two years ago. And the movement was under intense pressure from the Russian authorities, even in the months and years leading up to the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny in the summer of 2020. So the movement, such as it is, is largely in exile. You see it through its uh, continued savvy work on YouTube. But there's no grassroots politics happening. And the last point I think it's also worth remembering is the Russian popular reaction of Alni is one of passivity, inertia, and conformism. You don't see the stirrings of grassroots opposition to the Putin regime. The Putin regime largely sleeps comfortably in its bed. You heard his wife there say Putin and the Kremlin must be held responsible. What does that look like? How should the U.S. and the allies respond right now? Well, President Biden was pretty clear on this, that the United States and our European partners have put unprecedented economic pressure on the Russian government as a result of its aggression against Ukraine. We've seen a war that has cost Russia dearly in terms of the number of people killed and wounded. There's not a lot left in the toolkit, frankly, in terms of further economic sanctions that are going to make Vladimir Putin cry uncle. And I think we all need to be braced for a long-term period of confrontation with Russia. This is a formidable country. It's a country that has an intense grievance against the United States, and it has shown that it's willing to do pretty much anything to push back. 30 seconds or so we have left. How, how would you summarize what is Navalny's legacy? I think the legacy is one of tragedy. I think it's incredibly bleak right now. If you look at Russia's future, you have a country that is largely aging, and as I said earlier, sitting on the sidelines politically. People have gotten used to things that simply should not be acceptable atrocities on the streets of major Ukrainian cities and towns, unprovoked aggression against a neighboring country that was not looking for trouble. So I think what we see is that, you know, Alexei Navalny was a symbol of hope for a lot of people, that there could be generational renewal, but the hard men in the Kremlin have no interest in that happening. Andrew Weiss from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Always good to speak with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Amna. Let's turn now to our Nick Schifrin, who's in Munich for the annual security conference. Nick, so how did this news about Alexei Navalny land in Munich? 
Amna, it was a real shockwave. That is the best way to describe this. I was with the congressmen and women uh, and their staffs uh, as this news came in, and it was really received with horror. Uh, that quickly became grief, uh, mixed with a lot of doubt uh, about, the, about whether this was actually true. Many of them have worked with Navalny and his staff for many years, uh, and many of them quickly started putting together statements that would blame Putin, that would blame the Kremlin, uh, even though there's no official confirmation. It also instantly changed the conversation. Uh, as you know, Amna, a lot of the conversation coming into this conference was about former President Donald Trump and his comments about NATO. It was about the U.S failure to be able to deliver from Congress uh, absolutely vital military aid to Ukraine that it needs in the next few weeks. And instantly, the conversation became instead about Russia and Putin. So, Nick, as you say, much of that conversation focused on former President Trump and on Ukraine before the news out of Russia. But what about the conversation about former President Trump and NATO and Ukraine? Where was that today? Yeah, still very, very much going through the halls uh, of this uh, international security conference. And perhaps it's no surprise that at an international security conference, most of the audience uh, believes in international security cooperation. Uh, so perhaps Vice President Kamala Harris earlier today was playing to the crowd uh, when she suggested former President Donald Trump, whose name she did not actually use, uh, was the outlier for suggesting that the U.S. should not defend countries that do not meet that 2% GDP threshold of defense spending. However, there are some in the United States who disagree. They suggest it is in the best interest of the American people to isolate ourselves from the world. Let me be clear. That worldview is dangerous, destabilizing, and indeed short-sighted. One of the attendees here is Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas. I asked her earlier tonight uh, to first respond to the news about Alexei Navalny. Putin's playbook hasn't changed. I mean, we have seen a long list of political competitors that he has eliminated. So uh, this is not a surprise, uh, considering that he has been torturing Navalny for years already. This is the way dictators work. I mean, in dictator's handbook, what do you do? You uh, eliminate all the alternatives so that, you know, the cronies around you, when they see that you're going to the wrong direction, they have nowhere to turn to because there's no alternative. Was Navalny murdered? Well, I can't say that uh, because we don't know. I mean, we don't see, but it's clearly that uh, the intention of, you know, the poisoning that took place uh, some time ago, uh, the imprisonment and, and the way he was treated there, I mean, he was not treated well. This week, the Estonian Foreign Intelligence Service released a new assessment uh, that says Russia is preparing for a military confrontation with the West within the next decade. What is that based on uh, and can it be prevented? It can be prevented if we invest in our defense, because if you think about the aggressor, uh, the aggressor takes the step of attacking somebody when he thinks that he can win because the other side is weaker. So we haven't taken, uh, taken the defense seriously enough, and that means all the NATO allies have to do more. We've been focusing on Europe, but I want to ask about the U.S. Is the United States a reliable partner? 
Of course, uh, all these, uh, these uh, statements uh, from the uh, United States are making us uh, worried uh, because the uh, United States has been the biggest ally. And uh, I mean, the only time Article 5 has been used is when U.S. called us. So um, uh, this is something that we need to do together. I mean, when you have aggression p uh, that pays off some part in the world, it will invite other aggressors in the world to start wars uh, elsewhere. Does Europe need to assume that the United States cannot defend Europe and cannot provide perhaps Europe in a nuclear umbrella anymore? Uh, I don't think so. We have, uh, you know, the agreements in place in NATO, uh, uh, all the structures in place. What we definitely have to do ourselves is to do more, like I said before. But, uh, I mean, the United States has been a reliable partner, and, of course, uh, we hope that it's going to be in the future as you, well. You say we hope. Uh, former President Trump, of course, uh, has said twice now uh, in the last week or so that uh, perhaps the U.S. should not defend NATO allies that do not meet that 2% GDP threshold. Uh, perhaps the U.S. Congress can restrain a future President Trump from leaving NATO, but isn't the damage already done? I mean, isn't the damage to Article 5, the doubt that is being sown here, that the U.S. wouldn't come to NATO's allies? It has been a wake-up call for many European countries that haven't done enough. And I think that is a positive thing if they start to do more. Uh, but of course, uh, statements like this, um, we are uh, watching them um, and, and uh, you know, trying to figure out, but this is uh, not a surprise. I mean, President, um, uh, presidential candidate Trump, when he was president, he had the same ideas. But uh, what I want to say is that over 60% of uh, uh, American experts go yeah. to Europe, not to Asia, but to Europe. So it is actually to the benefit of uh, your people, your jobs, your <laughs> employment, uh, your uh, um, I mean, prosperity, um, that we are so, I mean, really tied to each other. So if something happens in Europe, that has a very clear effect on American economy. The U.S. House of Representatives so far has not accepted sending more military aid to Ukraine. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, we're already seeing Avdivka uh, about to fall to Russia because of a shortage that already exists for Ukrainian uh, weapons. Uh, and there's also worries that without this military aid, Ukraine will run short of air defense just in the next few months. Uh, some I talked to are worried that Ukraine will lose the war if the U.S. House does not send that money. Do you share that concern? Definitely, we have to help Ukraine and we have to help them more. I mean, uh, because they are defending their country. Uh, if you think about the countries in the Ramstein coalition that are supporting Ukraine militarily, so the combined defense budgets of uh, the Ramstein coalition are 13 times bigger than that of uh, Russia's heavily inflated one. But without so, the U.S., doesn't that number change dramatically? But actually, uh, actually, Europe has done more than U.S., but of course, America has a very, very important share there. So, so um, it is something that we have actually calculated if all the Ramstein coalition countries would commit to 0.25% of their GDP in military aid to Ukraine, uh, this breaking point for the war could be there. But finally, you know, 
Ukraine has been sent more than $80 billion of military aid from the West. This past year, it did not achieve even its lowest goals for the counteroffensive. What can it achieve with more military aid, even if the House releases it, that it hasn't already? Uh, well, uh, if they have long-distance weapons, if they have real weapons to defend themselves, uh, then they can push back Russia as well. So, so the breaking point in, in all these elements could be actually uh, much nearer. But of course, um, I mean, we can't also say that let's just walk away and say that, okay, you get this territory and the aggression pays off. If aggression pays off, it serves as an invitation to use it elsewhere. And then we will wake up in much more dangerous world. So how do you see this war ending? Uh, I see this war ending with uh, Russia going back to Russia. That is actually very, very simple and easy. Prime Minister Kayakalos, thank you very much. Thank you. In a stunning financial blow, a judge in New York today fined Donald Trump and his business associates more than $350 million, ruling they engaged in a years-long effort to inflate the value of their assets in order to defraud banks and insurance companies. Judge Arthur Ngoron also barred Trump from serving as an officer or director of any business in New York State for three years. New York Attorney General Letitia James, who prosecuted this case, celebrated the decision today, saying in a statement, Quote, no matter how big, rich, or powerful you think you are, no one is above the law. For his part, the former president blasted the ruling in a statement posted on social media, writing, quote, the justice system in New York State and America as a whole is under assault by partisan, diluted, biased judges and prosecutors. William Brangham has been following this case closely and joins us now. So, William, by all accounts, a fine of more than $350 million is a punishing financial blow to former President Trump. Tell us more about what the judge ruled today. That's exactly right, Amna. This is a, a stunning legal and financial blow to the former president. Trump himself is ordered now to pay over $355 million. His two adult sons each have to pay $4 million. Trump's chief financial officer has to pay a million dollars. Trump, as you mentioned, is barred from running any business in New York State for three years. His sons are barred for two years. The judge also ruled that, a, that a, an oversight monitor who is currently watching the companies will stay on her job. She will also have the authority to, to uh, appoint an independent compliance monitor who will keep an eye out going forward. So there's no doubt that Trump will appeal this ruling. But based on a statement of his own assets from this trial itself, this penalty could basically take and cost the former president all of his current available cash savings. So, William, in prosecuting this case, the New York Attorney General Letitia James argued Trump and his associates committed repeated fraud. The judge clearly agreed with that. Can you remind us specifically about what Mr. Trump and his associates were found guilty of doing? That's right. The, the, the prosecution, and now the judge affirms this, that over a decade-long period, the Trump organizations and their various companies inflated the assets of their holdings, and they put out these statements that basically exaggerated their true net worth. And 
They did this so that banks and insurance companies would look at those companies and say, oh, they're much rosier than actually was true. And so over the years, they benefited enormously from what the judge called blatantly false financial statements. For example, they, they, they tripled the square footage of a luxury penthouse. They said that real estate projects that were not completed were completed. They said they had millions of dollars in cash on hand that they could control when they didn't. And, and Judge Ngoron in his ruling today was, was withering towards the former president and his company, saying that they were unwilling to acknowledge this fraud and that they were certainly not willing to vow to do differently going forward. In his ruling, he wrote, quote, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. They are accused only of inflating asset values to make more money. The documents prove this over and over again. Donald Trump is not Bernard Madoff, yet the defendants are incapable of admitting the error of their ways. And so Judge Ngoron, in his ruling, issued this enormous financial judgment against them and barred them from doing work in New York State for years to come. All right, that is William Brangham reporting live for us from New York tonight. William, thank you so much. You're welcome, Amno. In the day's other headlines, President Biden again urged a ceasefire in Gaza, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu again pushed back. The two men had their latest phone conversation overnight. Afterward, on social media, Netanyahu dismissed U.S. pressure for a Palestinian state, saying, quote, Israel outright rejects international dictates regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. Later, President Biden focused on halting the fighting and heading off an Israeli assault on the city of Rafah. There has to be a, uh, a temporary ceasefire to get the prisoners out. I'm still hopeful that that can be done. And in the meantime, uh, I don't anticipate, I'm hoping that, uh, you, that the uh, Israelis will not make any massive land invasion. Meantime, the UN's International Court of Justice rejected South Africa's call for urgent action to safeguard Rafah, and evidence emerged that Egypt is building a wall and buffer zone along the border with Rafah. It's feared that an Israeli attack there would drive more than a million refugees into Egypt. Satellite images taken Thursday showed plots of land being leveled on the Egyptian side and up close the makings of a concrete wall. Earlier this week, cranes were seen working in the area. Spillover tensions from the war in Gaza roiled the Red Sea again today. Missile fire, apparently from Houthi fighters in Yemen, targeted an oil tanker ship along the Yemeni coast. The vessel suffered minor damage. The Houthis have links to Iran and have demanded that Israel end its war on Gaza. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has inked security deals with two European allies as U.S. aid remains stuck in Congress. In Paris today, Zelensky signed a long-term military package with French President Emmanuel Macron. Earlier in Berlin, he reached an agreement with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. He also expressed hope that American help will still come through. I expect that the United States will not drop out. There are some hotheads in the U.S. involved in the political process. Despite the complexities in the House of Representatives, I expect that in all of this, a pragmatic American approach will be found, that we are protecting the security of the world. 
In Ukraine, Russian forces slowly advanced in the eastern city of Avdivka. Ukrainian troops there have run short of ammunition, and U.S. officials blame the stalemate in Congress. Here at home, two juveniles have been charged in the shootings at Kansas City's Super Bowl parade. An official statement today said they were accused of gun violations and resisting arrest, and that more charges are expected. The shooting erupted Wednesday outside Kansas City's Union Station as the parade was winding down. One person was killed and 22 others were injured. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has announced he will not run for president after all. The centrist Democrat had considered a third-party bid, but he said today he does not see a path to victory and does not want to be a spoiler. Manchin already announced he will not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate. In economic news, wholesale prices rose in January after falling in December. It was another sign that inflationary pressures have not yet run their course, and it disappointed Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 145 points to close at 38,628. The Nasdaq fell 130 points. The S&P 500 was down 24. Still to come on the news hour, President Biden visits Ohio one year into the long recovery from a toxic train derailment. David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. And the Iowa phenom who broke the NCAA women's basketball record for career points. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. If you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This take-no-prisoners approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. It's been more than a year since a toxic train derailment devastated the small Ohio town of East Palestine. The initial fire and controlled burn of chemicals a few days later left residents there concerned for their health and safety. And after much anticipation and some criticism, President Biden visited the community for the first time today. President Biden met with officials on the ground who updated him on their ongoing cleanup efforts. Working with the state, We've tested the air, the water, the soil quality, deployed teams of health experts, provided emergency loans for local businesses. But it's not done yet. There's more to do. The president pledged support and assured residents that he is holding Norfolk Southern accountable. While there are acts of God, this was an act of greed that was 100 percent preventable. But for former East Palestine resident Lonnie Miller, the president's visit is too little too late. It's been a year. We needed him last February. He could have stepped up and demanded more help for us and not force us to go beg Norfolk Southern for help. The rail line runs across the street from the home Miller shared with her husband and son, who grew up admiring the train. She says her family's feelings changed last year after the fiery train derailment. The thing that we once loved watching out front, you know, from our living room window is now the thing that I'm most terrified of. I am just terrified that it will happen again. 
She's now packing up the last of her belongings from the house she lived in for 30 years. Her family took out a loan to relocate 10 miles away. Our house has been on the market now for over 100 days. We haven't had a request for one showing, not one. And that kills me because I loved it so much and nobody wants it. Miller says she's grown distrustful of Norfolk Southern and resents that her local and federal governments have directed her to ask the railroad for help. We are being told to go to them, the ones that did this to us. We shouldn't have to go to them for help. Since the derailment, Norfolk Southern has pledged to make it right and says it has given the town over $100 million in community support, including a $25 million upgrade to East Palestine City Park. Some residents are receptive. I think the railroad's doing the best they can. They're putting more money in the park than it's, it, the whole town's even worth, except for the love of the people and the town. So you got to give them credit for that. They haven't left town, they're not leaving town. Could have had somebody and just closed up and got inside that railroad and hid from it all. They didn't do that. Some people spend the rest of their life trying to chastise them. Some of us want to just move on, and then there's other people who want to fight about everything. And it's, it's very divided right now. But for Barb Kugler, a 30-year resident of East Palestine, watching the division and her once close-knit community play out has been painful. She says she's most concerned about the perception of East Palestine, now best known for being the site of a toxic train derailment. I don't think this town will ever be the same. I think we're going to be feared for a long time, and I hate to say that, but people are going to believe what they want to believe. After the derailment, just blocks from her home, Kugler turned her crafting hobby into a business, selling her wares at a shop just outside of town. But she says she's noticed an uneasiness in her customers. I have run into some people who say, oh, well, where are you from? And I would say, oh, well, East Palestine, and then they would put my items back because they're afraid that there's something in the fabric. And it hurts. For Ashley McCullum, the fear is warranted. So these are the symptoms, so they have experienced almost everything. Concerned that her community's health issues were being ignored, she started compiling the symptoms residents said they were experiencing, including her own. She lived two blocks from the derailment site. When we first started going back in, I could only last in town for about 10 minutes before having serious issues. I mean, it, early February, I was vomiting after I went into my house. So it was that intense. For the past year, McCollum has been living in a hotel nine miles outside of East Palestine with her boyfriend and seven-year-old son. She's hesitant to sell her home. She says it's not safe to live in. Norfolk Southern has been paying for her stay and some of her expenses, but she's not sure if that will continue. People are walking into their homes having nosebleeds. They're having chronic problems, memory problems. This should be taken care of differently. It feels like you have to beg the person that did this, that's saying, oh no, it's all in your head, nothing is wrong, to do something for us, and it's just not okay. For now, McCullum and her family live in limbo, with an uncertain future ahead. One year later, there are still many questions about safety standards for all trains, especially ones carrying hazardous materials. We're joined now by Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to the News Hour. 
Good to be with you. And I want to start with one of the questions we heard most often from folks in East Palestine, and that's why it took President Biden more than a year to visit. Well, the president went at the invitation of the mayor, and I think it's especially important right now, one year on, to demonstrate that the commitment of this administration to the people of East Palestine didn't end when the political and media firestorm left that town a few weeks after the derailment. It continues, and we will be with the people of East Palestine for as long as it takes. There are different sides to the response. The EPA has been leading the process of holding Norfolk Southern accountable for the cleanup. Uh, FEMA has been involved. For our department, the process mainly has to do with making sure things like this can't happen again, which is why we've taken so many steps on rail safety policy and are pressing Congress to do more with the power that it has. Well, despite intense scrutiny from regulatory agencies since that derailment, rail accidents have actually increased over the last year. Why? What accounts for that? Well, I think this demonstrates why we need that bipartisan Railway Safety Act in Congress. Don't get me wrong, we're doing everything we can with the authorities that we already have. Focused inspections, uh, a new rule that we, we recently finalized requiring emergency escape breathing apparatus to protect crew members on trains carrying this kind of hazardous materials, uh, audits and safety advisories, other measures. But. The simple reality is we need a stronger hand, and Congress could and should give that to us with the Bipartisan Railway Safety Act. I'll give you just a couple examples. One thing that that legislation would do is it would lift the statutory cap that prevents my department from fining a railroad anything more than low six figures, even for an egregious violation that leads to a fatality, which is obviously not enough to get multi-billion dollar corporations to change their behavior. It would also accelerate the uh, adoption of safer equipment and standards that uh, on our own, it would either take too long or uh, we simply lack the authority to do. Now, there was a lot of uh, noise about this a year ago, but now, one year later, I think because of intense lobbying against this by the railroad industry, it has been very difficult to get many members of Congress on the record on whether they're for or against this Railway Safety Act, even though it had both Republican and Democratic co-sponsors at the time. Well, I spoke with the CEO of Norfolk Southern on this program about this bipartisan rail safety act, and he said that he supports what he calls data-driven safety standards, like more heat sensors on railways, for instance. But he doesn't support this proposed mandate to have at least two crew members on trains. The industry wants to have, in most cases, one engineer on trains that could be miles long. The train that derailed in East Palestine was almost two miles long. He says he sees no link between crew size and railway safety. What's your response to that? I just think common sense tells you that when you got a train, especially a train that's two miles long or longer, you wanna have more than one human being on board that train. By the way, we're continuing to work with our authorities as a department to advance a rule that was uh, frozen during the Trump administration to try to make that possible with our regulatory authority. But Congress could make it happen much more quickly, and it's another one of the provisions in that Railway Safety Act. And, and by the way, we're talking about, uh, we're not talking about an industry that is hurting for the ability to afford to put human beings on the job. They have cut thousands and thousands and thousands of railway workers out of the workforce and are an incredibly profitable, some would say ridiculously profitable industry today. The idea that they want to go even further and have these trains going through American communities with just one person on board, again, I think it just flies in the face of common sense. 
Well, as you mentioned, the industry has lobbied against this bipartisan safety bill. Uh, and for the most part, they're largely self-regulated and self-policed. What more can you do in terms of accountability to hold these rail to hold the rail industry accountable, or are your hands tied without action from Congress? Our hand is very much limited without action from Congress. Again, I want to emphasize we're using all of the tools at our disposal, like advancing that rule on a two-person crew, uh, regardless of what Congress does. Uh, but there are other steps where Congress actually stepped in over the years and reduced our department's ability to press things like the adoption of safer tank cars uh, that would be less likely to rupture in a crash. They actually stepped in to, uh, uh, to, to delay processes that would uh, uh, allow our department to do more around braking and how that works. And again, I think it's clear why. Uh, the, the railroad industry is famously one of the most powerful in this country. It's wielded power in this country for, you know, famously since the 19th century. But uh, there were a lot of people who stood up in the wake of what happened in East Palestine a year ago and said, we've got to do better as a country. We won't let this happen again. My question is, where are they now? That is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Thanks, as always, for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. From the reported death of outspoken Putin critic Alexei Navalny to Donald Trump's latest legal blow, we turn to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. President Biden said today there's no doubt that Vladimir Putin's government is behind the death of the outspoken dissident Alexei Navalny. I want to start with your reaction and your assessment of the implications. Well, it, it was shocking. Um, um, just because of who Navalny was in terms of opposition, um, well-known opponent of Vladimir Putin, but also because of its timing, to my mind. The Munich Security Conference is happening right now. It is the, the most important gathering of in, uh, national security and foreign policy leaders from around the world. And the announcement of Navalny's death comes came uh, a few hours before Vice President Harris was supposed to speak, which was, which was known. Mrs. Navalny um, was there to do a panel with Secretary, former Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, this comes after, you know, we've been listening to Donald Trump saying, if NATO doesn't pay its bills, well, then Russia can, quote, do whatever the hell they want. And so this sends in, an, uh, I think, an incredibly chilling message chilling message to the world that Vladimir Putin, for lots of reasons, probably feels very, very emboldened. And when there's a major candidate running for president of the United States saying the things that he's, he's saying, Putin probably feels confident that maybe come November, he'll have a friend in the White House and he can do whatever the hell he wants. Well, what about that, David? Because we heard Andrew Weiss tell Amna earlier in the program tonight that it suggests that the U.S. will be locked in a confrontation with Russia for years to come. What does this suggest about Vladimir Putin's grip on power? Well, he's an expansionist, uh, and he's an expansionist and an authoritarian. You know, from Shoot me Carter until about George W. Bush, American foreign policy thought it was very important to champion democracy. And after Iraq, we've sort of stopped. And the last three presidents have really put that on the back burner. But the Democrats in every authoritarian country in the world, of whom Navalny is the most courageous example, they haven't stopped. They still believe in democracy. 
And it's a reminder to me that um, we should, you know, we're not going to invade countries, but we should be on the right side of history. And we should be using whatever realm we have to put democracy promotion back again toward the center of American foreign policy. As for Putin, he is what he says he is. He, he wants to be Catherine the Great. Uh, he wants to have an expansion of power. Ukraine is a start. The Poles are not worried for, they're worried for a reason. Uh, and in retrospect, and I didn't think this at the time, but in retrospect, it really looks terrible that we did not give the Ukrainians every weapon system we ended up giving them eventually when they, back when they had the momentum. Well, right, because you can add this news to what we learned this past week, that Russia is reportedly developing space-based capability to take out satellites with a nuclear weapon. And the question is, you know, how will the U.S. respond? How, how will this affect the ongoing debate on the Hill about Ukraine aid, do you think? Deeper by heart, Jeff, I hope it would change some hearts and minds, that it would change the political dynamic. But I don't see it changing anything, because the, the, the characters who are up there are unmoved by facts. They're unmoved by America's role in the world. They're unmoved by what it means and why it's imperative that the United States follow its, um, fulfill its commitments, but also fulfill its commitments to Ukraine and, you know, fine, maybe they, they don't care because President Biden is the one who says that what's happening in Ukraine is a war between democracy and autocracy. But at some point, they're going to be faced with the realization that if Ukraine falls, then they're going to be talking about Poland or Estonia or the other Baltic states. So I, I just... I would hope that the idea of a nuclear space weapon would turn them around, but mm -mm, not with these folks. Do you think yeah. this will help focus the minds of members of Congress? Yeah, I'm actually impressed by how much action there is on Capitol Hill. Last week, it looked like they were just tossing it all away. But if you look at Republicans in the House now, they're, they're two different coalitions. They've got two different sort of approaches. One is a skinnier bill where it wouldn't be 90 or 80 billion. It would be 60 billion. It would just be the military assistance without some of the humanitarian. There's another section who says if we can get some concessions from Democrats on immigration, the let people remain in Mexico while they're awaiting their asylum claims, then we'll give them the whole foreign aid package. So there's still a lot of momentum, uh, and that didn't need to happen. So I'm, I'm frankly a little more optimistic than I was before. Well, meantime, special counsel David Weiss charged a former FBI informant, Alexander Smirnov, with lying about President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden's business dealings with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. And it undercuts a major aspect of Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden. What do you see as the political fallout, Jonathan? <laughs> I mean, in, in a perfect world, um, Chairman Comer would say, okay, we're, we're done here. Our chief person who we've been, you know, resting everything on, caught lying to the FBI, we're done. We're going to go focus uh, on some other things. But, you know, when you ignore the facts, and you're devoid of shame, well, you can do whatever you want. And what we're hearing from Chairman Comer is, no big deal, we're just going to, we're going to forge ahead. So, again, I guess I'm the dour one at this table when it comes to, when it comes to Congress, and particularly the Republican majority, but I don't think it's going, it, 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 it might change the conversation that around this table, but it's not going to change anything in terms of the course of action that's already underway in the Hill. Is your view equally as dour? Uh, no. I'm not going to be Mr. today. Uh, you know, I think what we've seen with the Smirnoff case, where it was clear he was lying, and then you had the true the vote people who were claiming there was election fraud in Georgia, what you're seeing is that for mysterious reasons, the, Bush, the Trump administration attracted a lot of con artists. And those con artists are now running up against the legal system. 
and the legal system doesn't work by epistemic nonsense. You actually have to have evidence, you have to make claims, think claims are tested. And so we're seeing a lot of people in Trump world running against that and being blown away by the legal system. Well, well, a judge, as we heard William Brangham report earlier in this broadcast, has ordered former President Donald Trump and his companies to pay more than $350 million in the civil fraud case. Obviously, it's a major financial blow, but it's also a, a major blow to his persona, having built his brand on being a successful businessman and using that to you know, leverage his way into the White House. Um, yeah. Uh, and what he's doing now is as a result of all of these court cases, he's still making money off it. Uh, every time there's a, a ruling or any kind of judgment against him, he, there, there goes a fundraising email asking people for money to his presidential campaign, which I can't remember if it was, it's his daughter-in-law, who's now the incoming vice chair of the RNC, who says, we're going to use every dollar that we have in, in defending Donald Trump. Laura Trump. La yes, La Laura Trump, the, his, his daughter-in-law. This, you hit on the, uh, on the key thing, Jeff that this, this, this judgment today hits at his, his idea of himself, a, a very wealthy man. It is why he went to all of, those, all of those hearings when he didn't need to be there, because that, for him, is the existential threat. And now we're about to find out if he does indeed have nearly a half million dollars to put up to, to um, fulfill this judgment. And then when you add on the 83-point-something million-dollar judgment in the E. Jean Carroll case, we're talking more than a half billion dollars that he is uh, liable for. We're about to find out whether he actually has the money. A half billion dollars, I mean, that is, that is real money. How, how do you for see some this? people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, uh, Michael Cohen, the former Trump aide who turned, uh, said this was the case that really got under his skin, that sent him berserk and haywire because it does go to his core. It shows, and I think people can understand this, the guy had three sets of books. He had the banker's books where he inflated his assets, he had the IRS books where he deflated his assets, and then theoretically he must have had the real books. Uh, and so people can understand that, that's just fraud, that's just uh, being a con artist. Mm -hmm. And if he has to pay the money, I think that's gonna be bad. I says, he said he has $400 million, roughly, he said that. Mm -hmm. We can expect that he's inflated that number. <laughs> and so if he can't come up with the money, in this case, they start seizing assets. Imagine that what does to the Trump psychology. And then you get the part that's already in the judgment, which is that he can't be a businessman in New York State for three yes. years. Uh, and so this is the family business. And the family's basically got kicked out of the family business. All these, to me, are psychologically uh, de derailing things for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so I would expect we're going to have some sort of county reaction. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I suspect it'll be there. And on top of that, you have a judge re uh, rejecting his bid to toss the hush money uh, payment case, which is expected to start next month. That was said to be the weakest of all the cases. But, you know, looking at the totality of it, uh, what do you think the net effect of all this is? Well, he's going to, he's going to trial. He's going to be in a courtroom, and um, and we'll go from the theoretical to the the real. And I'm looking forward to it because you know, the the dude needs to be held accountable um, in a court of law. All right, Jonathan Capehart and David Brooks. Have a good weekend. Good to see you. Thanks, Jeff. Caitlin Clark is now the all-time leading scorer for NCAA women's basketball. The Iowa superstar made history last night when she broke the record on her home court, leading fans to erupt in cheers.
Just over two minutes into the Iowa-Michigan game, Hawkeyes point guard Caitlin Clark sank her signature shot, a deep three-pointer, and claimed her place in history. Upsetting now WNBA player Kelsey Plum's 2017 record. Plum had 3,527 career points in 139 games. Clark's now scored 3,569 in just 126. Clark needed eight points to break the record. She scored 49, a new single-game Iowa women's record, and led the Hawkeyes to a decisive win over the Wolverines. During the game, a quick timeout to celebrate Clark. You all knew I was going to shoot a logo three for the record. Come on now. After the game, the 22-year-old reflected on what the moment means for her. I'm very grateful. I'm very thankful to be surrounded by so many people that have kind of been my foundation and everything that I've done since I was a young little girl. And for the history of the sport. There's been so many people to come before me and, you know, lay such a great foundation for women's basketball, and that has to be celebrated too. That includes Kansas star Lynette Woodard, who holds the all-time Division I record with 3,649 points by 1981, before the NCAA included women's sports. And Pearl Moore, the overall record holder with 4,061 points. Records aside, Clark is widely seen as a once-in-a-generation talent. Caitlin Clark is one of the most transcendent scorers we've ever seen in the game of women's college basketball. She's a complete Player. Sports Illustrated staff writer Emma Bachelary. Beyond that, she's just attracted so much attention to the game and brought eyes and viewers and new fans in a way that I don't think we've ever seen anyone do in women's basketball. Sold out arenas, long lines, and record breaking viewership, a phenomenon dubbed the Caitlin Clark effect. The way that she's elevated this program and has been able to do something in her home state is really special and something that I think people really resonate with and has been part of this Caitlin Clark effect where you're seeing people come from all over to watch her. Just 100 points shy of Pete Maravich's all time scoring record and with the possibility to lead the Hawkeyes to their first NCAA title, all eyes are on number 22. Well, I had a chance to see her play in person. I have to say she is the real deal and a real joy to watch. That's incredible. Well, be sure to tune into Washington Week with The Atlantic tonight on PBS for a discussion about President Biden's tough words for Russian President Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump's consequential week in court. And on Saturday's PBS News Weekend, Nick Schifrin sits down with Egypt's foreign minister as the war in neighboring Gaza drags on. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening, an even greater weekend.